This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. As you're sitting down, if you have a Bible with you, if you could open up to the book of Titus. Titus is a small little book at the... Um, at the end of the uh, end of the New Testament, towards the end anyway, uh, Titus, and we're going to finish the book up today. So it's great to be back with you. I was out last Sunday. I was in Midland um, and serving with a sister church of ours there. So it was great to be with them. But it is uh, always better to be home. Uh, I guess I uh, have the privilege of working and serving some different churches in the region. I think in the last nine days. I've been gone five days in three different churches, so it's good to be back home and not traveling for a while, and uh, though I love that, love working with the churches in our region, um, I really love to be home and love to be with you guys. There's no place I'd rather be, not not even close, on a Sunday. So great to be back with you. Uh, We're going to finish Titus today, and uh, then we're going to do some Christmas stuff, as you heard about, and then next year... Uh, we are going to spend some time teaching through the book of Acts. And really excited about that because the book of Acts is all action. There's not a, I mean, there's not a dull moment anywhere in Scripture, but there's not a dull moment in Acts to be sure. And uh, it's full of life and it, it recounts the, how the gospel has momentum to move forward, to save people, uh, to build churches together, to send out Leaders and build new church, start new churches, and um, to build deeply into people's lives. It shows how the gospel has momentum even during times of persecution. Even when times look very bleak, uh, God is at work multiplying his work through his word, increasing his work through his word. So that's what we see in the book of Acts. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Really looking forward to that. Uh, but today we want to finish the book of Titus. And uh, if you're, if you haven't been here for the series, let me just sort of summarize really quickly. Uh, The book of Titus focuses on this idea, uh, that namely, grace produces godliness, that grace leads to godly lives, that we become Christians, that we become new people, that our sins are forgiven by grace. It's nothing we do. It's not our behavior. It's not our conduct. It's not our good works. It's Jesus Christ dies for sinners. He's buried. He's raised on the third day to defeat sin and death. And anyone who believes in him receives new life. That's the good news. It's a free gift. We, we turn and receive what Jesus did for us. So we are not saved. We are not converted. We are not made Christians. We are not given new life because of our works. It's all because of what he does. And once we receive that new life, then he leads us into a life of good works. Not to gain his favor, we already have his favor. Not to be accepted, he's already accepted us. But now that we're accepted as believers, now that we have his favor, now that we're welcomed, he empowers us to live a life of good works. And that's what the book's about. He's basically saying to this group of fledgling churches, Paul is writing to Titus, who's setting in order things in a bunch of brand new churches. They've just become, they've just come together. They're new Christians on the island of Crete. And he is coming to them and saying, look, once you've experienced this good news and you've been changed, you'll never be the same. You, you, your life will now change because he has changed you. 
And so that's kind of the idea. And so today we're going to finish up in verses 9 through 15. But I want to read two verses that Rob covered last week, verses 7 and 8, and then I'll jump into what we're talking about today. Verse 7, chapter 3. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now today's passage. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Our God, we are so grateful for your word, which speaks to us and reveals who you are and what you've done. And we pray today that you would just reveal yourself afresh to us. We pray that you would encourage us. We pray that where there is a warning for us in this text, we'd heed it and receive it with, with faith. Uh, we just pray that you would minister to us through your Holy Scripture today and that you would change us and make us as a people, corporately, as a church family, make us who you want us to be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you see in the two verses that I read ahead of time that, that uh, covered last week, this is the big idea of the text, of the whole book. Uh, verse 7, we're justified by grace. That is, we're declared right because of what Christ has done for us. God accepts us based on the work of Christ. That's grace, his gift to us. Verse 8, that the, he says that those who have believed in God, that's how we receive grace, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So it's a book about, because of the grace of God, devoting ourselves to then serving God, loving others, caring for others, uh, walking in obedience to God and His Word. We're called to that kind of lifestyle based on what He's done for us. But we're not only called to pursue something. Almost the entire book is about pursuing something, pursuing godliness, because grace produces godliness. But at the end here, he makes a point that we are to avoid something as well. So growing in godliness is not only pursuing God and godliness, that's primary, but we are also to avoid something. And he says, here's two things we're to avoid. We are to avoid divisive issues and we are to avoid divisive people. Those are the two things this passage talks about. I mean, this is a sobering passage. Somebody said to me afterwards, wow, that's just kind of not the passage you just picked to, to speak about. Uh, it's, it's got some heavy stuff in it. Um, you know, it's not one that's just, hey, I felt like just talking about today. Uh, when are we supposed to have nothing to do with somebody? That sounds like a good topic. Merry Christmas. So uh, it's one that if you don't teach the Bible, you don't come to these. But if you do go verse by verse, then these are the things we're privileged to learn about and apply. So we want to talk about that today. So first of all, he's going to say, 
to grow in godliness that we must avoid divisive issues. And we see that in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So the first thing he says is avoid foolish controversies. Now, he's not banning all controversy. If you think about it, Jesus' ministry, if you were watching it, you'd probably feel like it was one big controversy. Jesus is in controversy all the time. Jesus is in controversy with the Pharisees uh, and how they handled the law and what burdens they put on people. So Jesus is constantly in controversial dialogue with the Pharisees. Paul is in controversy all the time, it seems like. Paul is, a big part of his ministry was correcting the Judaizers. This was a group of people who were Jewish, and they believed that for a Gentile to become a Christian, he sort of had to become a Jew first. So it wasn't just salvation by grace, because what Jesus did, you had to obey some of the law. So you had to be circumcised and believe in grace. And so Paul had to deal with the controversy that was going on among the Judaizers and himself. Titus is dealing with controversy. Paul is writing to Titus and saying, set things in order, avoid false teachers. I mean, he is telling him to deal with controversy. So the Bible is, the New Testament is not opposed to uh, the church and its leaders dealing with controversy. But if you look at the controversies that Jesus and Paul were involved in, they were controversies that usually at some level, touched the gospel. They touched, how do we know God? They touched with, what does it mean to be a follower of God? They were, they were engaged in controversy around central, important issues. I mean, are you saved by grace? Or are you saved by grace, plus you have to do certain things in the law? That's a huge... That, that goes to who's a Christian and who's not. So the kind of controversies they were involved in weren't trivial, they weren't secondary, they weren't, well, we can all have a different opinion of that one. They were vital, they were central. That's the first thing. The second thing is, this passage just doesn't say avoid controversies, it says avoid foolish controversies. So what's a foolish controversy? Something that someone else is involved in that I'm not, right? No, that's not a foolish controversy. A foolish controversy, well, he doesn't define, he doesn't list any right here. But I think if we look at the context of the book, it's very easy. In the context of these two verses, it's, it's, it's easy to assume um, what a foolish controversy actually is. What's the book about? The book is about growing in godliness. The book is about the grace of God producing godliness. He's just said in verse 8, this is the immediate context. He's just said that the people of God are to be careful to devote themselves to good works, these things are excellent and profitable for people. So to be devoted to good works is profitable. It's excellent. It's fruitful. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and several other things. Look at the end of verse 9, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So what's profitable? Good works based on grace. What's unprofitable? Foolish controversies, controversies that don't contribute to godliness, controversies that don't help us to understand Christ better. When we talk about theological or biblical controversies, a wise or at least I would say a necessary controversy are those that deal with central issues of the faith. That's necessary. If somebody's challenging that, to enter into a controversy about the nature of Christ's death, is Jesus God? And man, that's worth talking about. But foolish controversies don't help us to know God better. 
They don't produce godliness on the, uh, actually just the opposite. They are worthless. They have no profit whatsoever, is what he says. See, here's what grace produces. And when you get the profile of this kind of person, you'll find this is not the kind of person that spends, them, spends their time in foolish controversies that are argumentative and divisive and, and, and bear no fruit. Here's what grace produces. Chapter 2, older men, be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and steadfastness. That doesn't sound like somebody who's involved in foolish controversies. Dignified, self-controlled, sound, sober in their thinking. Sobriety and foolishness are the exact opposite. Or, for instance, he says to the mature women, to the older women, be reverent and not slanderers. Don't be about speaking and harming other people's reputations. Don't lie about other people. Don't gossip about other people. That's foolish. And so yet, but the mature woman is to be reverent. She is to train the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, to be kind. So here you get a profile. This is a godly person, someone who's given themselves to what's important in honoring the Lord, not someone who's going round and round and round in some foolish controversy. Or slaves. It says slaves are to be act in such a way that their lives adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So what he's saying is, Act in such a way that your lifestyle makes the gospel beautiful. And that doesn't really make the gospel. The gospel makes our lifestyle beautiful. But for the person on the outside looking in, they would look and say, your life is so compelling that I must know what is it about you? It's about him. So the godly person lives a life that others would look on and say, that, that adorns the gospel. That reflects the gospel. Foolish controversies are just the opposite. That's not, someone doesn't look and they just say, wow, that's a mess. Or can't you do anything better with your time? Or why are you so upset about that? That's what the world would look on and say for those who give themselves to foolish controversies. See, that when the grace of God touches a life, it makes us, he says in verse chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, it makes us zealous for good works, not zealous for controversy. And foolish controversies at that, which are unprofitable, and worthless. So this is a concern for this new church. New Christians, they're in Crete together, and Paul is concerned that they would be giving themselves to foolish controversies. So how about us? Is that a temptation for us? I was thinking about it this week. Do you realize that a couple thousand years ago in Crete, do you realize what kind of access would they have to foolish controversy? I mean, if you want to engage in a foolish controversy in Crete 2,000 years ago, you have to talk to a person. You have to be in the same room. They don't even have books. You can't read controversial stuff. Most of them wouldn't have had scrolls. You certainly couldn't Google a scroll for some kind of controversy that you want to find out about. They didn't have books. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have a radio, a television. An internet, there might be a foolish controversy or two somewhere on the internet. Someone may have linked to one on Facebook one time somewhere. They, if, they, if there's a concern that this church could fritter away what counts and is profitable, giving themselves to good works, and instead give themselves to foolish controversy, if that's a potential on Crete with no electricity and no books, no telephones, no texting... 
No, if they can, if they're worried about it with that, then we should be exponentially more concerned because we have more access to foolish controversy. And I would say in our culture, most of it happens not face to face. But it's what I listen to and entertains me on the radio or it's what I watch or it's what I read about or it's what I see on Facebook or it's what blog I read and participate in. It's these are the places where often foolish controversy reigns in our culture. And he's saying, don't give yourself to that. And yet we can be in the middle of foolish controversy 24-7. 24-7. So what are the foolish controversies he's talking about? Well, he doesn't tell us. He just says they're foolish. So there's a principle here. I, I can't list what they are. Uh, there's a principle here. If it doesn't produce godliness or it couldn't contribute to godliness or doesn't help us know the Lord better, or, then, then there's a chance it may be. So here's what I think will be helpful is not to list. I'm not going to list for you. Here's five foolish controversies. Here's five talk radio programs that are controversial that you shouldn't watch. Here's five TV shows. Here's five Internet sites. And if you avoid all these, you'll avoid the foolish controversies. Of course not. I think what we have to do is ask questions about controversy. So here's some questions. Ask ourselves this. If wading into this, if I wade into this controversy, even per, either personally or through reading uh, or through watching or listening or internet, whatever, if I wade into this controversy, is it going to be profitable to my knowing the truth of Jesus Christ? And we're talking about theological and biblical controversies primarily. Though I'll say you can get your heart full and fill your time with sports controversies. You know, we can, he's talking about theology, I believe, but we can go beyond that. If I wade into this controversy, is there any way it'll contribute to my godliness or the godliness of others? If I wade into this controversy, is there any way it'll contribute towards our mission as a church? Will my time given here empower me to make disciples who love Jesus, love one another, and love the lost? Is there any place in that matrix that this controversy will help? Will it be fruitful in helping me in the mission of making disciples? Can I listen to the various viewpoints of this controversy, whether they're on a flat screen TV or in my living room or over coffee? Can I listen and participate in the viewpoints of this controversy without giving in to fear and despair and discouragement and anxiety? I will mention one foolish controversy. I said I wouldn't. I'll mention one. Y2K. It's enough in the past. I think we can talk about it. We're safe. I hope I didn't offend anybody by that. Did the Y2K panic, which evangelicals bought into that hook, line, and sinker way more than, the, than unbelievers did, I think. I think evangelicals bought way more into that than unbelievers. Did it produce godliness in the people of God? Joy, the fear of the Lord. Did it produce godliness? No, it produced people eating powdered meatloaf in a bunker with military-grade weapons at their side. That's what it produced. Did it produce godliness? We got the Mayan end of the world coming up. So we met, we, I'm not sure we're going to make it to that Christmas Eve service or even that 23rd. If, if they had it right, if they had it right, well, we'll be with the Lord and that'll be fine. And that's probably controversial that I even just said that. So, okay, there's a foolish controversy for you right there. Is the controversy fueled by speculation? Some people say, some commentators say the word foolish means speculative. And uh, I couldn't find agreement on that, but some said that. 
So is it fueled by speculation? A lot of controversies. It's not like open your Bible and read. What does this say? Well, let's look at the context and the, let's read the, it's speculation. That's where foolish controversies come. Well, it could be, well, it could be, it might be. Uh, foolish controversies frequently have, uh, you know, some kind of conspiratorial nature. People that love conspiracy typically can wade in ignorantly or not so ignorantly into foolish controversies. There's something conspiratorial about it, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes. So is there speculation? Is the nature of this controversy, is it really fueled, is the, is the fuel of this controversy and dialogue, is it really fueled by gossip? Is it really fueled by like creatively, I mean, um, I'm sorry, wanting to know inquisitive, curiously wanting to know about someone that I wouldn't normally know about? If it's a theological controversy, is it, is it, is it a central doctrinal, doctrinal issue or a secondary doctrinal issue? So, for instance, a central doctrinal issue would be the nature of the atonement. What's the nature of Jesus' death? That's something the church and its teachers and its people must be willing to understand and talk about and defend. I mean, we've done that here recently, even this fall, talked about a challenging idea to the, to the nature of the atonement. So that is one that absolutely, that's not a foolish controversy, though we could handle ourselves foolishly. That controversy is not foolish, it's central. Yet arguing and debating on secondary matters Tertiary, I don't know what four and five is, but I'm not even sure. But I think tertiary is three, but whatever. Four, five, six generations separated speculative matters about eschatology, the end of the world. That could be a foolish controversy. Now, eschatology is not foolish. That means the end things, last things in the Bible. That is a, an appropriate study. But when we start speculating about all kinds of stuff, when we start interpreting the Bible with, uh, you know, where the, where the newspaper uh, headlines and what's happening somewhere else in the world is equal with the Bible and we're putting it all together, when we're rolling out charts with some kind of assurance, we may be speculating. And we could begin to get into things that aren't so sure, and we could take something that's not so sure and elevate it to a place that we are sure about and be divisive about secondary matters. So eschatology... That, that might be a place, that's not the atonement. And we, I'm sorry, we can't differ on Jesus being a sacrifice for our sins and be Christians. We can differ a ton on eschatology. So we'd be foolish to make that central and take what's central and make that secondary. Does the controversy take time and focus and emotional energy away from what's profitable? Paul says, give yourself, I want the church, the people of God to devote themselves to good works. If I am devoted to loving my neighbor, if I am devoted for caring for my family, if I am devoted to God's word and prayer, if I'm devoted to being a hard, diligent worker in the marketplace where I work, if I am devoted to discipling those, to making disciples of those I'm connected to, if I'm devoted for caring those, for those who have needs and bearing the burdens of those who are weighted down, there's no time for foolish controversies. Foolish controversies become the enemy of devotion to good works. If for no other reason, not only is it a distraction of mission and purpose, you only got so much time. So if I spend my day speculating and wondering, and did you hear, and what could that be about secondary matters, 
then I of necessity will not, as this book ends in verse 14, 314, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't devote yourself to good works and foolish controversies at the same time. And that's his concern. They're unprofitable and worthless. worthless. And those who traffic in foolish controversies often, not always, but often breed division in the way they relate to others. And he's about to, do, uh, he's about to talk about that in a very serious way. Okay, so avoid foolish controversies. Secondly, avoid genealogies. Most of us in the room are looking to go, okay, that is one scripture today I'm going to obey. And I have obeyed. If we're going to confess our sins, I've got to say, I have never been devoted to genealogies. I am pure on that one. Well, what's going on here? I really don't know. This will be the briefest of the four points. I don't know. Genealogies like your, your history, your heritage, your family tree. So probably some of the people, if they had a Jewish background, may have been going back into their family tree and may have been asserting their status based on who their relatives were, something in their tribe historically. It may have been something like that. It could have been my status, my holiness, my righteousness tied to my heritage, perhaps. But we don't really know for sure. We just know they were into genealogies. So... I suppose someone in the room, I mean, if, if you're convicted about specifically there, like familytree.com or whatever that thing is, well, repent and enjoy freedom. But I don't know. I, I, I think that was something that was religious and tied to their religious heritage that was probably very specific. Next, he says dissensions, dissensions. What's dissensions? A dissension is a strong disagreement, <clears throat> a strong, contentious disagreement. It means argument, but it means strife. It doesn't just mean argument. It means the kind of uh, factious, contentious arguing that we can all be subject to. I know I can. We all can. It's a strong disagreement that fosters division and strife. So the result of this strong disagreement is broken relationships and not unity in the body of Christ. And he's concerned about that in this fledgling church, that people would give themselves to it. So he says, avoid, shun, separate yourself from dissensions. It may stem from false doctrine. There probably were some false doc. There's false doctrine happening in this fledgling church. There's some false teachers so dissension could come because somebody's trying to sow into the church false doctrine. That could cause dissension. But, but the word isn't tied to false doctrine. Paul uses the same word elsewhere. He uses it in Romans. He uses it in 1 Corinthians. And every time he's talking about quarreling among saints, he's, he's not talking about just false doctrine. He's talking about strife among believers who believe orthodoxly. Ortho, yeah, who believe in orthodoxy. So it could be unorthodox heretics, and that breeds dissension, but it could be Bible-believing Christians who still could, be, who could breed dissension in the life of the church. So it's a strong disagreement that breeds dissension. Does that mean we can't disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ? Absolutely not. That's not what it means. I would expect we would disagree with one another. I could guarantee it. <clears throat> so it doesn't mean that we can't disagree. Does it mean that I can't question someone else's doctrine or practice? No, it does not mean that. Does it mean, does dissensions and avoiding dissensions, does it mean that I can't differ with this church? Or if you're from another church, does it mean I can't differ with the viewpoints of the church? No, it doesn't mean that. Unless you mean the central core statement, if you disagree that Jesus is God, then you're not a Christian by definition. So we can't, we can't disagree on something like the Trinity, 
or salvation by grace and still walk together as Christians. We're not a church if we don't believe that. But setting the core doctrines aside, what about all the other things where there's a range of views? Does this mean that I can't disagree with the church on something? No, it does not mean that. Does this mean that I can't disagree with my leaders? Does this mean, let's be very practical, does this mean that I can't disagree or have a different viewpoint or a different take on a secondary matter from the teaching from this pulpit at this church? If something's taught, what if I want to investigate that and think about that? Would that be okay? Uh, That'd be required. You should do that. You shouldn't take what I say at face value without considering does this line up with the Scripture. In the New Testament, Paul says the people in Berea were commended because when the Apostle Paul, pretty significant teaching gift, pretty significant leader in the body of Christ, when he comes in and teaches, they're commended because they look in the Scripture and they see, is that true or not? Now, they weren't haughty and judgmental and they weren't cynical and believing the worst and gotcha! It wasn't that kind of an attitude. That's not a good attitude, but an attitude who says, yes, I want to hear. I'm leaning forward to hear from my pastors from God's word. I'm expecting they're teaching the truth, but I'm going to check it out. I'm going to look for myself. You should do that in your scripture. You should lean forward in faith and you should evaluate. So is that dissension if I think differently? No, that's not dissension. What if I have a different view on some secondary matters? What if my practices are a little different than some of the families in the church? What if, so what if I have a different take on the, some, some doctrine that, that, you know, it's a secondary matter, doesn't, but it's just something I, I'm, I think I have a little bit of a, a different view. Is that dissension? No. Matter of fact, I think the gospel is on display in a much more glorious way when a church can come together and say this, on the centrals of the faith and of what our mission is and how we're going to walk together, uh, yeah, we're, we have agreement. But there's plenty of secondary issues where we might have a, there, we, we agree in principle, but we're going to have some different practices from person to person to family to family. And you know what? We're going to hold those loosely and lightly, and we're going to hold tightly to Jesus Christ and the gospel and the scripture. And where it's clear, we're holding together tight. Where there's options and it's not as clear, we're taking some freedom to have different points of view. And we are centered in unity around the gospel. We could even acknowledge a disagreement and say, here's what we agree on. We agree on Jesus and we're walking together because that's a secondary matter that should not separate us. That's where the gospel is on display. To get everybody in the room together to dress the same, look the same, smell the same, talk the same, believe everything the same, have exactly the same lingo, all the practices are identical. That's not a church. That's clone-like imitation, and that does not communicate the gospel. That includes, I can copy someone else without thinking, without reading my Bible, without praying, without getting counsel, counsel, without thinking, without praying, and having my own convictions. That doesn't display the gospel in a beautiful way. We're displaced. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting, let's all guy find out, let's all get some different views. You heard what he said today. I'm just going to disagree with I'm not. I'm not fostering disagreement wherever it is, but if we have disagreement in clear conscience based on the Scripture, then we should be able to walk in unity and say, that's, we're committed to Christ and he's working. And you know what? Maybe I'll change my view. Maybe you'll change your view. But that's not the central thing. The central thing is we're the body joined together, and we have a set of agreed doctrine and values that's in our statement of faith that we're committed to together. We're, we're, we're walking together in this. But there's plenty of differences. So that's not dissension. Dissension is when there is an attitude, when there is an elevation of my preference, my view, my doctrine, my soapbox, where there's an attitude that separates me from someone else, where I am, where I am want to be proven right, 
where I want everybody to acknowledge my secondary view. When every small group meeting, somehow a community group, I'm going to get in there, my pet peeve doctrine and idea, which has nothing to do with the conversation. When I'm doing that, when, I, when you differ from me, when rather than dialoguing about it humbly, when I go to somewhere else, someone else, and start talking about you, and I start impugning your character, and I say, how could anybody believe that? And if he believes that, then you know... Now, that's dissension. I'm creating strife. Now, you don't like that person because I've come and thrown up all over you my opinions, and now I've created dissension, strife, contention. It's not peaceable. It's not self-controlled. It doesn't have the aroma of Christ about it. It's the body of Christ where he gave his life, shed his blood. I'm tearing into that. I'm separating members of that. That's very, very different than what I'm talking about. See, grace produces godliness where we say, whatever it takes, let's maintain the unity of the Spirit in the body of peace. Dissension says, I'm right at all costs. And anybody who disagrees on this with me, they're ignorant, they're sinful, they're wrong, I'm better than them, I look down on them because their practices aren't like mine, or their views aren't like mine on secondary matters. That's strife. And it's very, very serious because it's addressed all over the New Testament, this, this topic. What kind, of, what kind of topics, what kind of issues lead to dissension? Any issue. Because dissension is not issue-driven. Dissension is heart-driven. So any issue, any issue. It, now, false doctrine breeds dissension. So I want to clearly say that could be what's part of what's going on here. But more than false doctrine. What kind of topics could breed dissension in our church? Any topic. But I think we could be vulnerable in a lot of places. Marriage and parenting practices, not principles, not what are the principles the Bible teaches, not clear commands of Scripture. Optional areas of practice can be an area of dissension. If I promote my practice and judge you for yours, when the Bible doesn't address either one of them in clear language, that, I could, my heart could be given to dissension. Our view of education, educating our kids, our view of media choices, in our families, that, that, can, that can breed dissension if I am taking secondary issues and making them primary and central and a basis for my fellowship with you. Here's one in the South, in the Bible Belt. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an issue in Europe or somewhere, but here, for, among Christians, alcohol use. Not drunkenness, that's clearly forbidden by Scripture, but moderate alcohol use. Nutrition standards. I mean, when I was growing up, this wouldn't have been an issue, but now it is. Like nutrition, what, what should we be eating? I mean... You get Christians together and talk about that. You can get, we can take my, I can take my issue and I can judge you and you can judge me. I could be so shocked I could drop the Twinkies out of my hands while you're talking to me. <laughs> That's a foolish controversy, wasn't it? Dissension, how we eat, health care, choices of health care and health. People divide over that. Political preferences. I'm not talking about moral issues that the scripture addresses, but a lot of political issues are secondary issues and dividing over party or over this leader or that leader. What I think about this issue, and if you don't believe me, and if you don't identify with this guy, I, I saw his talk show, I heard him on the radio, and you don't like him? How can you be a Christian? He's not even a Christian. What do you mean, how can I be a Christian if I don't listen to him? I don't have anybody in mind, but you know what I mean. Political preferences, how we relate to the culture around us. Here's the biblical principle. Be in the world, 
but not of the world. So how much in and how much of? And we can divide over. People can, oh, whoa, you, he is so worldly. Why? Because I wouldn't do that. And he did that. He is so legalistic. Why? Because he frowned on me for doing that, you know? So we have to look at the scripture and have scriptural principles, but that kind of thing. How about theological issues? View of spiritual gifts, Calvinism versus Arminianism, eschatology, church government. You go on and on. There are issues that may be very important in some ways, but they're not issues that, that you're not a Christian or that I could elevate my preference or my take on something. See, dissension can come from any topic. When we take a secondary issue or a personal practice or preference and we refuse to walk in unity and we refuse to walk humbly with others, you can destroy a relationship and you can split a church. And that's why he's saying, don't do this. That's why he can say, avoid. That's why he say, pursue good works, avoid dissension, strife, arguments. Next, he talks about quarrels. Avoid quarrels about the law. Quarrels about the law. What's going on here? Probably he had people wrangling about how do you apply the Old Testament. These are Christians. They may be from a Jewish background. How do we apply the Old Testament? What are we going to do? What are we free to do on Saturday? What are we not free to do? What part of the law are we still under? So they're probably wrangling about that. How can you be a God? What does godliness look like in terms of Old Testament law? What of it is to be applied? What of it is to be fulfilled in Christ? What makes us pure? All these kind of things. They were probably arguing about that. And Paul says all of these, and we can argue about that too. That can happen here. I mean, I've been in those conversations, so this isn't like a first century thing. This is, this is live today. How, what, how do we relate to the Old Testament as Christians? So there can be debates about that. So he is saying, and that can be a healthy debate if we're talking about central things, but it also can, be, it can go into trivia as well if we take secondary things. So he's saying all of this is unprofitable. False teaching from false believers is unprofitable. Divisive issues among believers is unprofitable. And here's what happens. In my experience, when I enter into, when I take a strong opinion on something that's secondary and probably gets, gets, gets controversial, I see someone else doing that, what typically happens is no one acknowledges that as a, fo- a foolish controversy or a dissension. We don't see it that way. What we see it is we're standing for truth. We're bringing a prophetic voice to all these slumbering Christians who don't see what I see, who aren't, truth be told, as wise and godly as I am. That's what happens. We're not causing dissension. We are applying discernment. I've got discernment. I've got a discernment ministry. I've got a discernment website. I've got a discernment teaching. I see things clearly. And other people... Don't. Happens that there's like 99% of those other people, but who's counting the statistics? They don't see it like I do. I am protecting the church. So you went and told me about this, but you didn't go to the person you have a problem with to protect the church? I'm protecting the church. We're impugning people's character to protect the church? We're taking something that's secondary, that different people can have a different view on, and elevating it to primary, and now separating to protect the church? But that's how it can look to me, and that's how it can look to you. And it's, it's unprofitable. It's worthless. That's what Paul says. Avoid divisive issues. Secondly, div- avoid divisive persons. 
Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That is sobering. It's just sobering. That's in the Bible. I mean, when we read that, let's be really honest. Does that not seem a little harsh? Especially in our culture where all views are equal, all truth is relative and equal, everyone's got a spot at the table. How? It sounds highly judgmental. It sounds highly divisive to say, I'm going to divide. Isn't it not divisive to say, we're dividing ourselves from you? So what is he really saying? Because that, that's how it can hit our ears in this culture. What is he saying? Who is this person? Well, this person is someone who, verse 10, stirs up division. They stir up division. We can hold a different opinion firmly and yet humbly with an open hand, you know, trusting the Lord on a secondary issue. We can do that and trust the Lord, and that's not divisive. But if we are seeking to separate, to contend, to tear down, that is divisive. Now, some people have said the word, for the guy who stirs up division, that the word is it's the Greek word that we get our word heretic from. Every scholar that I looked at said this, that that word meant heretic later. It's very similar. It's almost a transliteration of the word heretic. That word meant heretic later, but in its usage here, it didn't mean, it wasn't, that wasn't the common usage. It didn't mean someone who was unorthodox. It meant someone who stirred up division, and that's why the NIV, the ESV, that's why they translate it. That's why it doesn't say heretic, because that's not what it meant in, as a primary usage at that time. It meant, didn't mean just someone who falls outside of Christian orthodoxy, though it could be that. It's not just someone who's saying Jesus is not God, the Bible is not true, God is not triune. It's not just that, though it would include that, but be a broader group of someone who is factious, contentious, and divisive. And Paul's concern here is not pro- solely that this person believes false doctrine. What is his assessment? His assessment is, verse 11, this person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Paul's concern is this guy's behavior is dividing the church, not that he only believes false doctrine. So he may believe false doctrine and is dividing the church, but he also could believe uh, true doctrine. He could be a genuine Christian and still acting in a divisive manner. He is warped and sinful. He's someone who loves to fight who loves to fight, who's looking for a fight. In his commentary on this passage and on Titus, uh, Brian Chappell wrote something interesting that I want to read you. And he, he compares a sort of a peace-loving person and a strife-loving person. And he says it this way about the person who stirs up division. He says, A person who loves the peace and purity of the church may be forced into division, but it is not his character. He enters arguments regrettably and infrequently. When forced to argue, he remains fair, truthful, and loving in his responses. He grieves to have to disagree with a brother. Those who are divisive by nature lust for the fray. They incite its onset. And they delight in being able to conquer another person. For them, victory means everything. So in an argument, they twist words. They call names. They threaten. They manipulate procedures. And they attempt to extend the debate as long as possible and along as many fronts 
as possible. That's a divisive person. That's a divisive person. Not someone with a different opinion. Not someone with a different view. Not someone who disagrees with a secondary matter with someone in their church. That's not divisive or contentious. It's the person who is separating, who loves the fight and is looking for it, who, I love what he says, twists words and calls names, impugns character. That is a divisive person. So how does Paul say to treat the divisive person? Well, in the first, in the first instance, I think he says to treat him with a hope for redemption. He says to warn him. That's what he says. He says to warn him. He doesn't say... If someone's divisive, show them the door on the first statement that they make. If somebody says something divisive, you're out of here. That's not what he says. Probably, this is a three-step process. You know, warn him, warn him again, and then have nothing to do with him. Put him outside the fellowship in efforts, in, in essence. Probably what this is, is a collapsed version of Matthew 18. And I guess I'd want to say we have to interpret this in light of Matthew 18 because the Bible, we interpret Scripture according to Scripture, and the Bible talks about how to deal with folks that we have an offense with um, who, who are acting in a sinful way and that we go to them is what Matthew 18 says. And if we establish that something's happened and there's an offense, then if they're unrepentant, then we bring someone else along with us to work the matter out. So there is a going to, there is an inquiring We don't just say, you're divisive. We may have misunderstood what they said, what they did. We may, they they may have had a totally different motive and it just came out wrong. We may have bad information. We may have been, you know, wrangling in foolish controversies and misjudged them. So it's not just some quick one time, okay, I'm counting to three. You know, it's not that. It's not just like you're out of here. There'd be some kind of process. There would need to be some kind of process uh, where we evaluate a person is divisive. And the reason I say it's redemptive is because if someone is warned who's acting to tear apart the church, if someone is warned about that, the leader's warned. See, Paul is talking to Titus as the leader who's setting the church in order. So if that is brought to them and they repent, we're done. If they say, you're right, I love Christ, I repent, I don't, I don't want to hurt the body of Christ, um, then it's over. We, they're back in fellowship and we're moving on. But if they stay unrepentant, we, there's to be a second warning to that person, an appeal. Others appealing, praying, asking. And if they continue to act in an unrepentant manner, then Paul says they're self-condemned. What does that mean? By their own refusal to repent, they've, they've shown they're condemned. They, they're acting in sinful ways against Christ and his body. Do you know they're persecuting Jesus? When when Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, he doesn't say, Paul, Paul, why are you harming Christians? He doesn't say, Paul, Paul, why are you destroying the church? He doesn't say, Paul, Paul, why are you dividing the people of God by persecuting them? He says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That's what Jesus says. The divisive person is seeking to divide the body of Christ that Jesus died for. And so that's why Paul takes the most extreme measures imaginable and says that cannot happen because that will ruin the body of Christ that Jesus died for. And so don't, don't allow them to remain, Titus. The, the, the people of God must not continue to interact with someone who willingly, unrepentantly, consistently is dividing the church, introducing false doctrine to the church, standing on false doctrine, or even saying they're a Christian and yet living like one who is dividing and causing strife and defense, division and tearing people apart.
So then they're to be treated like an unbeliever. They're to be, I mean, share the gospel with them, but don't welcome them into the fellowship of the church because they're tearing people, they're tearing it apart. You just share the gospel. You interact with them. You tell them there's forgiveness in Christ and appeal to them to follow him. And how does he end the letter? So he has this kind of sober part. It's been about good works. There's this sober part, avoid divisive issues, avoid divisive people, ultimately, if they remain divisive. And then here's how he closes, by saying grace to all. He closes on grace. He says, he has some housekeeping business to close. Verse 12, I'm going to send Artemis and Tychicus to you. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis for I've decided to winter there. So Paul's saying, I'm going to stay in winter. I'm going to stay for the winter. You can't travel by ship in the winter because of the storms. I'm going to stay in Nicopolis. You come meet me there. I'm going to send Artemis and Tychicus. So they're the subs. They're coming off the bench and you come see me. So they're getting off the bench. They're getting in the game. They'll take care of Crete. You come and see me. He says that, uh, verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Who are Zenos the lawyer and Apollos? Probably the people that delivered the letter to Titus. So Paul wrote it. He, they probably delivered it because he's saying speed them on their way. They've come, in other words, they've come to visit. Why? Presumably to deliver this letter. So I would like to give a shout out. I did this in the first service to any attorneys in the church because attorneys are constantly mocked uh, for their lack of integrity and various things in our culture. People tell attorney jokes, but I just want to point out that there was an attorney that was probably entrusted to deliver this letter. I'm not an attorney. Don't play one. But uh, but I just want to commend attorneys get a good word in this verse of the Bible because Zenos was a trustworthy man. Verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So there he goes back to it again. We must be devoted to walking out our life together in Christ, building up the body of Christ, teaching, encouraging, admonishing, serving, helping, loving, bearing with one another as a community. And we must be doing that in our culture to live good lives Honoring Christ that adorn the gospel for our witness to those who don't know Jesus Christ. So we must be caring for one another. We must be caring for those who don't know Christ and sharing the gospel with them. We must be taking care of urgent needs. Foolish controversies are not urgent needs. Secondary matters are not urgent needs. Walking in love is an urgent need. Sharing the gospel is an urgent need. Caring for others is an urgent need. Serving the needy is an urgent need. So give yourself to that. And if you're reading the scripture is an urgent need. Praying and communing with Christ is an urgent need. And if we're giving ourselves to that, then we won't be doing the other. Working in the marketplace as a hard worker for the glory of God, worshiping the Lord as we do our whatever our, our calling is, our work, we do it unto Him. That's urgent. Raising our children, loving our spouses, that's urgent. Discipling our children, that's urgent. Some of these other things, no. Don't invest your emotional energy and your time in them, is what He would say. And then he closed with this, verse 15. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the, uh, in the faith. Grace be with you all. Grace is the starting point. Grace is the ending point. 
Grace is everything in between. He's saying the grace of God is that you have the favor of God. You are welcomed before God. You are joined. You are united to Christ. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are adopted by the Father as his child because what Jesus has done to you, for you. Grace to you all. And as he talks about the book, everything in the book, it's all about grace applying that. And by the grace of God, grace to you all, Titus, as you try to get the right elders in the church. Need the grace of God to get the right men serving as elders in the church, and that's what he's supposed to do to appoint them. Grace, Titus, as these elders and you stand against false teaching. Grace as you try to mature as older men, setting an example through self-control and godliness, sober-minded, full of faith and love, persevering steadfastness. That's going to require a lot of grace. Older women living reverently with self-control in their speech, self-control in their appetites, not drinking too much wine, he says. That's going to take a lot of grace. Younger men having self-control and, and, and walking in the fruit of the Spirit of self-control, it's going to take a lot of grace. Younger women learning to love their husbands and their children and to be kind and to be busy at home. And the various things he says that the older women are to train the younger women in, that's going to take a lot of grace. Slaves who are going to not steal from their master, but who are going to act in such a way that the gospel is on display in beauty, where they beautify the message by their very lifestyle, they give credence to the message, they advertise the message, that's going to take a lot of grace. Serving in society, submissive to rulers and authorities, as he says, not walking in malice and envy, That's going to take a lot of grace. Avoiding all the things that can suck the life out of the church. Distractions to grace, like foolish controversies, dissensions, secondary matters becoming primary, quarrels about things. It's going to take a lot of grace for the church to avoid that. To taking a courageous stand and and addressing someone who willingly, unrepentantly, blazonly, hard-heartedly comes against the church in a divisive manner, that's going to take a lot of grace. That's going to take a lot of grace. And that's why he says at the end, grace be with you all. He is with us all. His name is Jesus. And he is present by his spirit. Grace is in us and among us and building us together. We need him to walk out the truths of this book, to live lives devoted to good works, zealous for good works, that takes the grace of God. And he's already active in our midst in this way. May he increase all the more. Please be encouraged by God's work in your life and in our midst. And be appropriately sobered for the temptations and the tendencies in your heart and my heart, which are to come against and destroy the very thing that Jesus is building his church by grace as we insert ourselves into the center. May God guard us from that and protect us as a people who love those who need him and love one another. Let's pray. Our Lord, we want to acknowledge today our gratitude that grace is among us, that you have come and opened our eyes to Jesus, that you've introduced us to him, that you've saved us, that you've given us new life. How grateful we are for that truth today. And Lord, I just want to, uh, I want to thank you for the grace that's in our midst. I pray that you would make us zealous for your word, zealous for your truth, zealous for your spirit, uh, zealous for your mission, zealous for good works, zealous for our families, those who are married or have children, zealous for our church. Lord, we zealous for our city and those who need you to serve them and preach the gospel. We pray that we'd be zealous for the things that are on your heart. 
And we pray that you would protect us from tearing down what you've given your blood for. We pray that you would guard us from false doctrine. We pray that you would guard us from divisive issues. We pray that you would guard us from the self-righteousness and the arrogance that puts secondary issues first. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, for your body was broken and your blood was shed, that we might be one. And we pray we would never do anything to tear that precious unity. God, we pray, I pray that we would differ in a God-glorifying way. Pray that the gospel would be central and we would be a people who have differences and yet unify around Christ and love one another deeply. And it would be a profound testimony. Lord, we don't want to be identical in every area of our lives. We want to be identical in our devotion to you and to your purposes and to your gospel. So, Lord, do that. That would be glorious in our midst, we pray. Oh, God, we pray this season that you would reach out and touch many through the message of grace. I pray that you would empower us to share it in Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.